Hello and welcome to COVID-19 and the EU, a podcast where we look at how the EU is responding to the COVID-19 pandemic and look to the future for EU citizens living in the era of COVID-19 in the context of travel, health, vaccines and other areas that affect our lives. In this episode, I caught up with Agaritsa Baka from the European Centre for Disease Control and Prevention. We talk soaring rates in Europe the origins of COVID-19 and the threat of more pandemics, potential vaccines, and what it's like living in Sweden, very much the outlier of Europe in terms of its response to the virus. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast Agaritsa Baka, who's the senior expert at the European Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, based in Solna in Sweden. So hello, Agaritsa, how are you? Good morning. Hello. It's nice to, nice to talk to you. So uh, cases are on the rise here in Ireland, north and south of the border, as well as in, in across the continent in Belgium, Germany, France and other EU countries. Can I just talk to you from your point of view of how the EU or the ECDC is currently responding to the COVID-19 pandemic as we approach wintertime? So, yes, we are closely monitoring the rise of cases, which has started uh, almost three months ago, actually. But now it's uh, getting more serious. And uh, according to the latest data, only three out of the, if we count also the EA countries, 32 countries are seeing a little bit of decrease right now. All the others are seeing significant increases with top ones, as you mentioned, uh, Czechia, Belgium, France, Spain. We are following it closely. We are very shortly tomorrow, actually, going to issue a risk assessment again. It's, our going, it's going to be our 13th update and our 15th risk assessment during this time, where we are going to talk about, again, mostly ramping up preparedness. The, the issue is that the, we have learned a few things during the spring. We have learned, for example, that how important healthcare surge capacity is, how important it is to uh, shelter and, and protect your vulnerable populations, like elderly. But we also have uh, managed to learn a little bit better the management of the cases. So the clinicians are more comfortable with the disease. And uh, actually, the guidelines have slowly changed as we get more data in. So ECDC in general is, is kind of focused on, on one hand, following the data. So we have a big team in a, what we call epidemic intelligence following the numbers, actually, which we update daily. And, and they are the basis for a lot of big search engines that you can find on the internet. Actually, even we are proud that even um, uh, Oxford team is using our data, even uh, Johns Hopkins is watching our data. So we're really proud of that. And on the other hand, is also providing advice for the member states in the form of risk assessments or specific documents. Sure. And, and, and just in, in terms of that, then in Ireland here, we have the National Public Health Emergency Team and they are advising our government. And would they take uh, the advice then from the ECDC just so that 
you know, uh, people who are listening to this to kind of have some sort of awareness of how, how this works? Yes, definitely. They will. ECDC works on the basis of forming networks with the member states. And we have networks for specific diseases. For example, influenza, which was mostly before the one that causing pandemics before COVID. Now we do have a new COVID network. But we also have for um, entities like uh, national focal points for preparedness, for threat detection and all that. And all these get the up, all these persons in the member states get the updates. And uh, we have the feeling that they are using them uh, because we get some feedback uh, in the form of um, questions, emails uh, and all that. So we know that people are reading our output at least. But one of the issues that we want to evaluate, actually, when things calm down finally, would be to see how much and how all our outputs have been used. That sounds like it will be a big undertaking (laughs) for whoever has (laughs) to take on that that job. The, The numbers that are rising at the moment, was this predicted by the ECDC? It was in the sense that we have talked immediately after the big strict lockdowns of the spring. We we spoke about the fact that resurgence of cases is expected in the sense that when you have put people away from each other in their homes and then, okay, then you even gradually or suddenly you release them and they come back together, the virus has not disappeared. So it's a matter of time for chains of transmission to start picking up. That is one of the things that we said it is bu- is bound to happen. And the only thing that the member states re- should, say, establish and take the time to strengthen and empower is the public health system that is doing the testing, contact tracing, which is extremely important, isolation of cases, quarantine of contacts and follow-up and all that. All this, uh, which is very basic public health, very resource-intensive. And uh, it's one of the things, unfortunately, that was kind of weak before we started all this experience. It was weak because the public health systems have been actually underfunded for years and years. So Certainly the... Uh, funding of of our public health system is often um, very high in the agenda of any political conversation and particularly around election time and I just wanted to touch on something about preparedness there because we look at examples like China and Thailand and Korea and so on and they seem to be in a much better place and is that in your opinion is that because they have had decades of dealing with pandemics or or maybe not pandemics but with viruses and they're, they're much better prepared for, and their populations are better prepared for this. Definitely. I mean, in the last 20 years, that is where the, what we call emergence of new viruses has happened. Uh, so we had 2003, the, the first, let's say, SARS. Uh, then in 2012, uh, we had the MERS, of course, arising in, in Saudi Arabia, but then South Korea had a very bad experience with an incoming uh, uh, case uh, that caused a very big outbreak there, which caused a big concern and actually strengthened a lot their system for future pandemics. Um, Then we had uh, the 2009 um, 
pandemic of influenza, which was mild and everybody has forgotten it more or less. Um, so yes, and like China is is dealing also with other what we call zoonotic, so so influenzas that exist in birds or uh, pigs that jump infrequently to humans. And so they are used. One of the other things that unfortunately or fortunately we need to acknowledge is that um, their political system is very different and and they have the ability to uh, implement very strict and very complete measures uh, in the form of, for example, um, severe travel restrictions even in their own territories, which we usually do not do in, in, in our countries. And, and what we are trying to see is like, even now we see that there is a huge disruption in, in the EU as a whole, of which one of the fundamental, uh, let's say, uh, rights of an EU citizen is to be able to move freely. And now it's not really possible. Um, so we are, we are actually looking to kind of offer options to the member states for for that one also. Um, so we have huge differences in that uh, in that in those respects and and uh, definitely there are social differences also in how people accept the measures in the two places. What has unfolded over the last 7-8 months is is alien to many Irish people, you know the the, the lockdowns, the, the, the restrictions, the, uh, you know, not being able to move freely and particularly, you know, around Europe and so on. Um, and I'm sure that's the same with many EU countries and citizens all over the EU. Just in regard to the origin of COVID-19, does the ECDC know any more about the origin? Because it, it never was quite clear, you know, and maybe it still isn't quite clear where it originated and when it originated and how it originated. Is there any more information on that? Uh, unfortunately, although we do have uh, frequent contacts with the Chinese CDC, but the Chinese CDC, as you understand, is also a little bit further up from uh, where was the first outbreak in Hubei, in Wuhan. But we don't have any more inside information, if you want to call it. I suppose you have seen that there were there were publications, there are a lot of rumors going around. We still think that this is this is a frequent natural phenomenon and probably probably facilitated as people think also by climate change that the contact of people with uh, other with wild animals is facilitating this jumping of the viruses that usually live in bats, jumping to other species and then from another intermediate species to humans. We still do not know exactly which one is the intermediate species, which will be extremely important to find out. But this is um, this is the type of research that needs to be funded uh, long term. And this is what we lack before, although Again, if you have seen what is discussed in the in the different forums, is that um, there have been warnings by some of the scientists who know these zoonotic viruses, who said that it's 
it's it's a matter of time that another coronavirus will jump. There was a paper from 2015, for example, that another coronavirus will jump to humans, but nobody cared at that time. Yeah, it does seem to have been widely predicted, not not only in the science community, but in the in the arts community and, you know, f- different movies and films were made that were very close to what has actually become the reality, you know? So in terms of, it was very interesting what you said in terms of climate change. Um, so we can take it then that if, you know, natural habitats continue to be destroyed around the world where humans are coming in closer contact with animals, that this is just going to continue. We're going to, we need to prepare ourselves for more pandemics we know that yeah that's what uh, yeah the, the even more experts in like uh, zoology and biology say that yes exactly we've seen that with other viruses for example in latin america jumping from um, the amazon forest or the let's say the jungle but uh, yes and then of course we've seen uh, the expansion of vector borne diseases in uh, in europe like the, this year we had for the first time Uh, cases of West Nile virus in the Netherlands. This was something that um, until uh, maybe up to 10 years ago was only around the Mediterranean and now it has reached uh, Germany and the Netherlands. So this this is an issue that we need to think and plan ahead. And again, I have to say that this needs investment, unfortunately, in the area. Is the investment forthcoming? You know, is there renewed vigor among members of the EU Parliament and the EU Commission to fund the likes of the ECDC to to study these links and these the, the origins of these pandemics? Well, one of the questions and the, let's say the discussions that arose after in all these months is what is the ECDC doing? <laughs> And it's true. I mean, what we're doing is, for the time being, was mostly connecting people, like I said, with networks, trying to facilitate exchange of knowledge, best practices, trying to get everybody to, to submit their data uh, for, the, for the communicable diseases to us so that we can, uh, we can make um, analysis and see where everything is going, what, what new policies need to be implemented and all that. That's our role, to give advice. Uh, however, of course, like you said, one of the questions that is discussed now in Ireland is, is where we prepared before. And so we have been asked many times from journalists, colleagues of yours and, and uh, politicians and, and countries, But didn't you do anything? Why didn't you do anything before? What did you do about preparedness? I mean, and it's natural, I think, to worry and and, and say, okay, so, but what did you do about that? And we did a lot of things, but in the spirit that I described, the exchange best practices, discuss about it, try to exercise with all of the countries or regions and try to point out where the gaps are. Unfortunately, these are what we would call soft (laughs) <laughs> soft data for the the countries and particularly for governments we cannot we don't have the mandate to control for example if a country says we are reviewing our plan we take it on face value like we say they are reviewing their plan we don't know if they are reviewing it or just telling us that they are reviewing it but okay this is one for example of the questions also that came 
after the big Ebola outbreak in, in 2014-15, when we all said, but why did we let these poor countries end up like that? We need to be more careful with what people tell us that they do about preparedness. So then after that, the WHO it kind of um, implemented what is called the joint external evaluations. Uh, so people from other member states and and the uh, experts would visit the country to kind of assess officially their preparedness. Uh, this is something that we, for example, as experts are participating and we're encouraging all the European countries to do that. But it's a big process and, and it takes time and it takes effort and money, of course. And not all the countries are doing it. We had um, a meeting at some point and the They told us, for example, that uh, Belgium, in order to go through the, the joint external evaluation, they had to work three to four months in advance to prepare themselves for all that. So it's a lot of time to devote to something for, for again, authorities that have little staff and little money. <laughs> this is probably going to change all this uh, with the... Uh, let's say, initiative of the German presidency. Now, there there has started a new discussion about our future mandate, which supposedly is going to be stronger. As you know, everything in the EU is a matter of negotiation, so this will take some time. It's not going to happen by the end of the year when the German presidency is finishing. So, We are waiting also to hear. We are excited. That's the first part of our mandate, let's say, to your answer. In the second, as far as money is concerned, yes, we did get some more money. So we are hiring more personnel actively to help us with the, uh, with the vastly increased workload. We are, we are uh, about 50 to 60 uh, full-time experts working only for COVID since January 7, even before actually, because they, they were following it on, on, the, on what was happening in the internet and they were reporting. But as of January 7, we are officially into this mode. So looking to the future then, and just for Ireland for a minute, we've been advised by our government uh, or warned, I guess could be another way of putting it, that um, we need to prepare to live with COVID now for at least another 12 months as we We have taken on a prepare, preparedness framework for living with COVID where we come in and out of different levels and we're currently in level five. Would you share that prediction across the EU that this is the way member states, most, most member states are going to have to, to live with COVID? I would say, I would say it's a good, it's a good uh, communication, I think, to the public because... Uh, Definitely, again, because there is a lot of discussion going on in the media about the vaccine and the vaccine is going to save us and take us out. It's true, if, but there are a lot of ifs. <laughs> It's true, we are going to have vaccines and, and um, that's for sure. Uh, the problem is that we are probably not going to have them so soon as we think. And then uh, we as experts are going to take our time a little bit to assess how effective they are and, and finalize the recommendations. And this will take time necessarily. So in all this, during all this time, we will need to keep on living, living with uh, COVID, definitely. Um, we just hope that people are not going to be so fatigued 
um, because we saw the reactions during the summer. We're just hoping that now it will settle down and, and people will just, uh, you know, ac accept the new, the new reality until we are able to, to control it a little bit better. I think the first time around, maybe people thought, you know, this is it, one lockdown and we're done and then everything will go back to normal. But now I think the realization has set in that actually we're going to have to get a new mindset to live with this for a, a, a more sustained period. Just in terms of living with COVID in a different country, you live in Sweden and I'm sure you're aware Sweden is, has been in the media all over the world because of their vastly different approach to, to uh, COVID and lockdowns and so on. What's it like living over there? How does, how does it differ or how is it similar? Okay, yes, I know I've, I've been getting this, uh, this question a lot. It is different, I have to say, because I also spent some time in my homeland in Greece during the uh, late spring and summer. It is very different. What I think is really something that the other countries should learn from is the way the Swedish authorities stayed with their recommendations from the beginning until now. Almost nothing changed in the in their um, recommendations, and actually, it turns out in my mind, I think it is that they knew their society so well that they knew that this is the the form that will be the best for them to follow the formula. Let's say, so they put all their money into the 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 voluntary, let's say, physical distancing. So keep keep away from each other as much as you can. Do not visit your elderly. Do not hold um, many crowds, parties, and all that. They limited the amount of of you know people uh, gathering together. They did have to do new um, legislation for for the restaurants, for example, and the bars and all that, and also for the inspections in those because. Their their society and their constitution is very different. They could not really. They they told us at least. I'm not such an expert yet for Sweden that they they couldn't really mandate people to stay in their home. They didn't have that ability. So one of the things. So it here it feels very normal. Actually, also they didn't go with the mask advice. So. Not many are wearing masks, only only us foreigners when we are outside <laughs> or in the buses. <laughs> that is very different. And are, are people wearing masks on public transport generally? Uh, very few, very few Swedish. I, I I do it because I am I'm the one who 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 hold who issued the advice, so I have to follow that. But I do it, yeah. Um, so it feels more normal in a way. It feels more normal because you see people around and everything and all that. But does that mean that masks aren't as effective as we are led to believe? Or does it mean that there's less COVID transmission in Sweden? I don't think there is less because we see their cases are also going up, for example. It's just that I think they naturally follow a little bit more the the keep away by your, voluntarily keep away from each other it's a very different again society structure there are a lot of single person homes here so not too many big families and all that they did have issues of course nothing is completely you know uh, pink 
uh, here. Um, they did they did have a lot of of uh, losses in their elderly homes, and they did uh, realize and acknowledge that they did not protect the the elderly as much as they should, and that their system had a lot of holes where people needed uh, where with very low salaries needed to keep working. They had a lot of um, uh, issues with the migrant populations and the, the suburbs where migrants are uh, concentrated that they didn't really understand at the beginning what was going on and the instructions then and the, the guidance was not reaching them. Uh, so the, actually, for example, they say that the outbreaks, the big, the big outbreak in, in Stockholm started from, from the migrant suburbs. Um, but then they did, you know, they kind of did corrective uh, activities like outreach activities and all that. That is what we need to learn. But this is in, and also in the in their society, the, ama- the amazing fact, which is extremely interesting for me coming from the South, where we are very suspicious, is the trust of to their government. Uh, even even in the in the worst days, their trust did not falter very much, <laughs> which is amazing. But this is something that you build um, from like uh, day one in kindergarten, not really from one day to the other. Well, Sweden is famous for having, you know, very good public services. And, you know, and I think that obviously helps with the trust of, of government. But uh, listen, it's very interesting to get that background, particularly in Sweden, but also your own um, take on on where we are at the moment. So I, I would just want to say thanks a million uh, for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Thank you. It's so interesting and I nice to talk about something that we're doing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that's great. Thank you, Agarista. We'll chat to you Thank soon. You. Bye. Bye. Good afternoon. That's it. More episodes coming soon. Thanks to Agarista Baka for being my guest on COVID-19 and the EU. Be sure to subscribe on nearcast.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. COVID-19 and the EU is produced with the support of the Communicating Europe initiative.